Hello everybody, welcome to the Technical Area, your weekly football manager podcast brought to you by me, your host, Gaffer Grainbow once again. The winter update is live. Funnily enough, the day after, day before it went live, I was only writing down some thoughts about improvements I would like to make to football manager. Seeing, you know, for example, the assist popping up on the name of a goal or with the name of the goal scorer as well on that graphic. Or at half time having some information to remind you to have a word of any players who are booked in the first half and remind them just to calm themselves down. Both of those came true less than 24 hours later when I loaded up Football Manager. So that was really exciting. Not only is it really exciting, I spent all of the last week playing the game. Finished off my first season with Valencia. Today is a double post day because not only is this podcast coming live, but also you'll find the link down below to the Technical Areas website. You can check out the latest blog post as a recap of finishing off season one. More on that though in a moment. There are a few little tweaks I would love to be able to make to Football Manager. I have gone back to the vanilla skin. I was just having some display problems with some of the other skins I was using with panels missing or compressed and not being able to, you know, fully represent them there. So that was a little bit disappointing because I really have been enjoying using the Renzi skin so far this year. What are the things I'd love to see you say on the pre-match screen when that league table pops up and your team name is highlighted in blue? I'd love for a way for you to see just where the opposition are. Just It's that kind of a little bit of a reminder, but also kind of a realistic touch like you might see, say, on Sky, BT, or whatever broadcaster as you watch. They do tend to highlight in a league match the position of both teams. That would just, you know, that would just be the, the extra little bit I'd love to see there. I also managed to take in the 2021 Champions League final in Football Manager as well. I didn't make it to a cup final, unfortunately, with Valencia in this first season. So it was nice to be able to watch the whole post-match presentation for, and, you know, just the improvements that have been made between FM20 and FM21 even in that regard are just fantastic. I just wish that my trophy-laden stints in FM20 with... Ren, winning the Coupe de France, the you know the the the, the trophy wins, the five six trophy wins with Bayern Munich, and even the the league title with Juventus. I'd love to have seen those with the graphical representations that FM twenty one has. So, plus that is certainly fueling my fire. Even though one of the things I did write down when I was kind of struggling a bit with the Valencia save in the last month was talking about redefining success and how success in football can't just be associated with trophies but with you know the mark the legacy that you make on i suppose in this case the virtual game that it is you're playing that i suppose will be a topic of conversation for another time this is episode 56 and episode 56 we're focusing on something that became very very important to me with valencia and that was establishing a conveyor belt of youth basically of youth production youth development talking about like having this promote from within philosophy because it became very, very important when I realised the finances were so poor with the club and the youth academy was so well stocked. That was the case even down from 18-year-olds all the way down to 15, 16-year-olds. There was a talented bunch of players, you know, ready to progress through the team at the first opportunity. 
having to rely on a lot of these players during my first season with Valencia as well. I've seen a remarkable growth in attributes in current ability. And I think even some of them, you know, you've you've really kind of seen them, you know, training ratings improving match. You can see that the difference more game time was made to their match ratings as well. So it's certainly something that really grabbed my attention. Now, I don't know if you may, you may have seen my tweets. I haven't seen any responses to them now. So apologies there. I am using Buffer just, you know, keep the Twitter account going, keep things ticking over, keep interest going. But um, mid-April, the news came in to me at Valencia that two consortia had progressed to, you know, talks of buying the club. One of the consortium, one consortia, had publicly stated that Massimiliano Allegri would be appointed manager should they be successful. At the beginning of May, uh, this one of the consortia was given exclusive rights to discuss, you know, to finalise the buyout as one faded away, despite both takeovers hitting the rocks with financial questions about, you know, how well financially both were stocked. One consortia then came through, and it was the consortia that said, and the first thing they did say publicly after taking over the club was that they would be appointing Massimiliano Allegri as the club's new manager. Obviously putting me in a very, as my job status became, precarious position. In the correspondence with the owners since they've taken over, they've said my job is under review. And if you look at the performance review, the manager review that we you get every month and you can see on the home screen through that the little tab. Um my performance went from A minus B plus with the previous ownership because we had just qualified for the Europa League with league performances or league results. Um with three, four games remaining, so Champions League was still on the board. Um I'd gone from that A minus B plus kind of you know, territory to in E and orders saying, yeah, they were massively disappointed with my performances as manager. Going into the final games of the season, um, in those kind of pre-match little, you know, press conferences that you do just before kickoff. So between like the team talk and kickoff, questions where I looked, you know, from the media, the journalists were saying, you know, your one, you know, one bad result here could see you lose your job and you're kind of like trying to, you know, bat it off, say, yeah, look, whatever happens, happens. I'm concentrating on my job and that's, we're going out here to win. And then after the both of those games, Massimiliano Allegri was spotted in the crowd. It was the news article that came after the, the match report. Kind of that kind of summary you get the press report. So as things stand, the season is over. You'll have to, you know, read the blog if you want to see how we we finished off the season in terms of our league position and so on and so forth. Don't want to be giving away too many spoilers. But I am now in a position where I fully expect Massimiliano, Massimiliano Allegri to replace me as manager of Valencia. Which kind of, you know, it's hard to take of, you know, I... The thought of playing with this team, this club, excited me at the start. Um, 
a kind of developed a little soft spot for Valencia back in the early 90s, like a lot of people would have when they won the league titles and they had that great team. Then especially that, you know, when Liverpool appointed Rafa Benitez, you kind of I threw an eye back to Rafa Benitez his time at Valencia and followed them a little bit afterwards and you're kind of seeing how great this team really was. I remember Liverpool playing them, I think, in the Champions League in 2001, maybe it was. 2001-2002 season. And I remember, you know, I remember Liverpool losing and I was like, this isn't a big team, but obviously not really understanding that Benitez had built on that quality side and really, you know, this was a really, really good team. And seeing them obviously in the, the the state that they're in, you know, financially at the moment in real life, reflected in game, it added kind of to the romance of the challenge. And establishing this conveyor belt, the re- the, the topic, the theme of this episode, that really did appeal to me. And unfortunately, um, it seems like that's coming to an end. If I, it, it wouldn't, I don't suppose, it wouldn't make sense. For me to keep my job, considering, you know, everything that it even comes up if you went to Massimiliano Allegri's profile, it says wanted, and then you see wanted by Valencia. Well, and Sevilla, Sevilla slapped Julian Lopetegui, unfortunately for him. Um, but yeah, I I can't see how it would make sense for me to keep my job when they've told me. They're not happy with anything. I couldn't renew contracts of any players even because it was saying we were under embargo. I couldn't try and sign any players even on free transfers because of the embargo that was then placed on me because my job was under review to this extent. So, unfortunately, it seems that after Atlanta failing, being sacked by Linz after six games, I'm now going to be sacked by Valencia after one season. And yeah, it's not a great place to be in. So I'm taking the weekend off, football manager. I'll go back to playing some Zelda on the Switch, I suppose, and gather my thoughts and see, you know, where I'm going to be, have some thoughts about where I'm going to bounce back and how I'm going to bounce back in football manager. Will I just adopt the winter update and begin in January 2021? Or will I look to continue in the same save universe? See if I can find a new job. A lot of thoughts there because I know I'd a lot of very keen to manage Shelbourne, manage that my, my club here. Um, you know, thought with thoughts to drift away, and I was rather hopeful I could stick with Valencia for the rest of FM Twenty One's life. But here we are at a point where you know, case or ass or So with Valencia, anyway, I wanted to develop this conveyor belt of youth production. I wanted to have a steady stream of young players ready to come into the first team. And I suppose the big reason was the financial constraints at the club. That was really why I wanted to set it up. And the fact, like I said before, already there was a very well-established youth academy with a lot of talented players right through the ranks that it was a case of I'd be amiss to neglect what was already there and I suppose instead of having a, a transfer budget that would need to be spread across multiple players, I could invest in one or two more senior players, players for the now, players that wouldn't block the pathways of young players, could act as mentors. So it's a case of you can build up quality in certain positions. 
And I suppose with all of us a football manager, there is this desire as well at times to try something new to, you know, impose different rules or twists to say if to work in a different way for us. So with Valencia, the finances meant that I could only had the ability to sign uh, free agents because I didn't have a transfer budget. I did start with the transfer budget switched off as well. So that would have impacted as well, I suppose. But because of the outlays of bringing in some senior players, I actually couldn't even complete the signings of, you know, players in their kind of late 20s, early 30s on free transfers because I couldn't even afford the signing on fees. So it was more, you know, focusing on these younger free agents due to like these small outlays. So it meant that any investment, any money I get in, I was spending it on coaches, bringing in the best coaches that I possibly could. And focusing on reduced, you know, the reduced wages and fees. That would be the transfer model we'd work with. That, and then we could recoup any investment and even, you know, make some profit in selling these young players off. And then reinvest this money, whether it was obtained through loans or sales. Now, of course, this kind of goes against what we see in the top five leagues. You know, for these, for, for, for many clubs in the top five leagues across Europe. And Valencia would fall into this group because, you know, clubs in these leagues are generally financially better off than their counterparts. And especially, like, the cream of the crop in these leagues. As clubs, their finances aren't as challenged. Clubs are less reliant on what com- has to come true. That is the case if they can plug gaps by spending money. And, obviously, look, registration rules have come in with homegrown players, non-EU players. So clubs can often, you know, subvert, twist and change these rules, as we all know, say from the Champions League, by leaving gaps in the squad, by not filling out all 25, leaving gaps that it's a case of we, we just have enough to, to do the job. However, I suppose in real life, um, the impact of COVID has come in and we're seeing larger match day squad, squad teams been able to name nine substitutes instead of what became seven and five recently, like and then five previously. And we're seeing that a lot of clubs are having to pad out the, their squads with um, a larger number of young players who previously would not have had the opportunities to play. At Valencia, that was very much the case with me and football manager. That was a case of, you know, I was having to rely on 17, 18-year-olds filling out the benches in certain positions as the league went on. Now, of course, you look to clubs like Manchester City, clubs who are, you know, have a, a lot of wealth. and you know, you look at some of the players they've signed in recent years, like you, even to the extent of saying the likes of Kyle Walker, you know, Raheem Sterling, English players who'd qualify under the homegrown nation rules but wouldn't be there under the homegrown club rules. And then I suppose maybe the likes of Eric Garcia would come in under the homegrown club rule because he was signed at a certain age, you know, from in, internationally from Barcelona. So what we're seeing is outside of these top clubs in the top leagues, we're looking for, you know, top clubs tend to prey on the ones that they, they believe to be below them, the tier below them, to bring in these players that may just be on the cusp of first-team action. Highly talented, highly regarded players. And then for the likes of the clubs who are in these kind of second or third tiers, if you want to rank the clubs in this way, in-house promotion would be used to pad out the squads. Clubs are more financially challenged. And then increase exposure to senior football for these younger players who are potting out the squads. They could raise interest in the player. And, you know, again, just like me, Valencia, the, the idea was like that to create this self-sufficient model where these sales 
these loans, these moves, selling off these you know, highly regarded younger players, promoting from within, it would raise further funds for the club and keep the club in a, a better financial um, health, in a condition of better financial health. The great thing with Valencia was as well, I'd made plans into season two. I began, like that I said, you know, signing younger free agents, you know. I had two good young goalkeepers, one 18, one 16. The 16-year-old is has a higher potential ability and higher current ability than the 17-year-old. So it was a case of my, my I would get behind the, the 16-year-old and bringing him through. Having yeah, Jesper Celestin and Hami Dominic as the two goalkeepers, two goalkeepers in their 30s, I kind of felt there was a little bit of a gap and I managed to plug it with an 18-year-old on a, uh, from Real Madrid on a free. Check the blog, you'll, you'll see who that was. You may have actually even seen it on Twitter. Um, Again, we lost a winger to Tottenham on a free transfer. Um, it wouldn't sign a new contract because of the wages Tottenham offered. So as a result, then we we plugged this with a, another young Spanish winger from Real Madrid. So you know, it was a case of we were having to rely on, you know, bringing in these young players from other clubs, and then trying to promote them from within. Because where finances are challenged, and you could even say in the likes of the French league right now, clubs are really being financially challenged because of the collapse of the television deal. That promoting from within may be the only option. Here in Ireland, you know, the League of Ireland is, is in a very kind of, uh, it is in a constant state of shift. Um, the clubs are constantly shifting. There's huge turnovers a lot in a lot of the, the, the you know, outside of Dundalk and Shamrock Rovers, really. because And we're seeing a lot of clubs really associate and affiliate themselves with League of Ireland clubs. Because the League of Ireland clubs are now really trying to invest and get the cream of the crop from as many kind of clubs as possible. And, you know, these, what would have been kind of informal relationships are becoming a lot more formalised in recent years as well. Most clubs only sign players on 40-week contracts, so at the end of every season, turnover is quite high. Well, like I said, Shamrock Rovers, the Dock teams who have performed well in European football in recent years as well. Having the financial structures in the club has helped them reach European, the latter rounds of European kind of uh, qualifying rounds and even the group stages of the Europa League so it means that you know you're, you're looking at clubs who have increased funds that can offer professional deals and that has really kind of changed the nature of the league and I suppose Brexit as well will impact what, what happens here so if you are looking for a save in Ireland you're going to be entering a much more challenging environment than previously before it's a great article linked up below from the 42 about um the League of Ireland and the impact of Brexit on new players and new production here because Ireland, like many other countries, would have traditional links with other kind of larger footballing nations, where we would see regular movement of players from one nation to another. Another example, I suppose, you could look at is Austrian players moving to to Germany, especially with the language barrier not being an issue there. Um, networks as well are appearing. We spoke about that last year with the likes of the City Group and Red Bull, creating these cross border, cross continental links where players. You know, can kind of come into these entry level clubs, local, regional clubs, and progress to, you know, further up the pyramid in these groups towards your Salzburgs, towards your Leipzig, towards Man City, and so on, Granada. 
one of the other challenges I wanted to kind of incorporate with Valencia was I wanted to look at how I could, I suppose, impose an identity on these players. I said it previously, I wanted to you know develop a set of players who had strong player traits. So it's a case of like every player would have a unique set of qualities that, I, that they would bring to the team through their player traits. And that was me kind of seeking to impose an identity on the on the club and on the players all the way down. And again, it's something you can find inspiration from from many clubs across the world, um, where they try to imprint these philosophical principles the clubs have on their younger players. If you read the European game, I know FM Samo loves that book. There's a great chapter on Rapid Vienna and how they look to educate their players. And it's a case of versatility is something that they would put a lot of um, time and effort into. And I suppose one of their new products, David Alaba, is possibly one of the best examples we can see of someone who, you know, has, you know, become a, an extremely versatile player. Left back, centre back, wing back, defensive midfielder, central midfielder, attacking midfielder, left winger. Even when playing the right side of the pitch at times. Like, I don't know if I'm going to call him an Austrian army knife in, in, in that extent, but... What we're seeing here is clubs being able to produce a high quality of players who can fill many needs, you know, makes them more attractive to potential buyers, potential suitors. And it can what we're seeing as well is, you know, maintaining an identity of the club, helping the club be identified and their players be identified across the world. And, you know, it's a case of, you know, really establishes this club, although it might be a feeder club, but establishing them in this way. So like that, with many clubs kind of moving towards these financially driven models, you know, um, especially at the top where, you know, youth production has kind of been shelved to an extent. There is a lot of clubs now looking inwards, looking to kind of change the way the club is run. And I suppose the impact is, I suppose, I don't know if you want to call it a blessing or a curse of the pandemic, the pause the world's current financial situation but it could be one of the greatest shifts in, in world football it could be something that we see being incorporated into club vision far more in fm22 that you know clubs want to promote from within um clubs want to sign a higher number of younger players i i certainly know of valencia you know, the club vision changed the new ownership where it said that's a case of players have to be sold before players can be bought we have to operate in this financially prudent model while the pandemic may not may have affected every club across the world, we're still seeing the likes of Manchester City. We're still seeing Paris Saint Germain. You know, clubs linked, clubs being able to afford and pay like phenomenal sums of money where other clubs may not be who would have been kind of wealthy previous to the pandemic, kind of being a little bit more hesitant to open the checkbook up. And I suppose what we're seeing now is really, you know a need for reinvention out there just before the pandemic and now kind of post pandemic the mls is a great example of reinvention that the club now that the league now realizes that it can be a, a selling a production league so what we're now seeing is the mls now kind of looking towards you know central america south america Signing, you know, high prospect young players, allowing them to showcase themselves in the league. And then, you know, 
use the league, use these franchises, these clubs, then as a stepping stone to get themselves across into Europe. It's a non-traditional route, but it's one the MLS is really trying to work. And obviously, look, we've seen it recently with the likes of Miguel Almiron kind of making the move to Newcastle as well. Now, obviously, with the MLS, there is the you know registration of players from the non you know homegrown market. These international players, the number of slots, the finances there, it, it is quite limited because of the structure of the league. So what we're as well we're seeing is you know these kind of bigger kind of global cities, LA, um, New York. You know, Atlanta even now to an extent looking looking to be able to, you know, establish themselves and, you know, trade, bring in more opportunities financially and, you know, through these registration slots to, to really establish them as well as a producer of young talent as well. Um, the Chinese Super League as well has undergone some significant refreshes to the league, like we've seen registration rules changing. Finances have kind of changed as well. We're kind of seeing to move away from these uh, astronomical fees being played to two players and four players, and as well, you know, I think I think I read a story recently with there being a potential rebranding of clubs as well to more, you know, inverted commas, but traditional names as well. And as well, you know, we spoke about Brentford before the rise of these B teams, clubs using these B teams to pick up discarded young players from bigger clubs, giving them a second chance. Um, Dinamo Zagreb as well, another club who've made great use of being able to pick off players from clubs, especially in Spain, like Danny Olmo, you think of. Bring them to Dinamo, help, you know, assimilate them into the youth production model that they have there. Give them game time, you know, integrate them with another great core of young players that's constantly evolving over time. And use the opportunity with Dinamo to put themselves in the shop window to make the step up like... And he almost has recently to RB Leipzig. And even to the extent then as well, we're seeing clubs, you know, continuing with the traditional standpoints that they've taken. Uh, Genk, the, the German club, there's a great art, little piece there on uh, Sports Kita, link below. And it, it talks about how Genk club, the club's business model is centred around the youth production, the youth academy. And that selling these players on then continues to finance the club. Kevin De Bruyne has, you know, possibly the biggest name to come out there in recent years as well as many other, you know, top quality Belgian players we've seen make the jump to England. Um, Dean was a grab, have done it. Athletic Bilbao, of course, the club with the Cantero policy. They're forced to, you know, I know, uh, was it uh, Renzi recently, a couple of years ago? FM editions ago, went to Hungary. And kind of brought a Cantera policy and players had to be born within 100 kilometres or so of the club. It's a great, great piece uh, series. Well worth checking out. But, you know, so if you want to impose a Cantera type policy, focus on developing these young players, bringing them through, like you see Athletic Bilbao, that the club has to stay focused on its identity through the location, through bringing through developing players. And it's a case if the club wants to not only maintain its current position, but, you know, continue to push forward. That we are seeing, you know, players having to come through constantly at a club like Bilbao to continue to push them on. You know, you look at the current squad there now with Iker Munain and Inaki Williams, two absolute standout players, you know, who've really kind of, you know, attracted interest on a globe, on, um, you know, from some of the world's biggest football clubs. So it's a case of we are seeing success there now. I know people would argue with the likes of Bilbao, 
you know, because of the ambitions and because of the restrictions the club has imposed on itself, you know, there, there is the challenge there to an extent that, you know, the, the rules have been a little bit lax. They've been very much kind of like forcing or, you know, and forcing kind of different aspects. It's a case of they've been very kind of, you know, laissez-faire almost to an extent of with players where they're based, where they're from, and they've been kind of very kind of, they'd be very, very aggressive and picking off players from other local clubs in the region. So I know Bilbao might be many people's favourite, but, you know, there are a standout club of adopting this Cantera policy. Even to the extent as well, you can kind of talk about Partizan Belgrade, you know, established new production in Serbia for many years. And, you know, you, you it, it doesn't take much now to look at AC Milan and Lille, clubs who've really adopted a fantastic youth policy and it's brought them, and it's, you know, look where the boat clubs are now. I know Milan have slipped off in recent weeks. But they have the youngest side in Italy, on average, if you check out the statista.com kind of thing, link below again. But as well as that, the club has been very, very clever. They've signed Ibrahimovic and Mandzukic. They're bringing in experienced players as well to, to be there, to help kind of nurture and develop these young players. Older guys who've been there, done it, won it. Like, Ibra has been everywhere and been successful. Mandzukic has been successful as well and won a lot and even a World Cup final in 2018. And although Milan might miss out on the title in 2021, the experience that this young squad has gone through of being in a title challenge at a young age, um, you know, the fact that they have this such a young squad, you're kind of talking about this, this could be the beginning of a platform of a sustained challenge in future years that if the club can keep developing and bringing through players bringing find it bringing in young players from across the world even and nurturing them and bringing them through we could see the rise of milan again in a new in a new sense Lille in europe's top five leagues are the youngest squad of the youngest squad 22.9 years of age and they're you know leading the title charge in france with ps ahead of psg battling with Leon at the top. It, it's fantastic to see. Other clubs though, the youth policy, the youth development that has been present in recent years has now kind of, has to be questioned. So where we would have traditionally kind of looked to a club like Ajax, we have kind of seen some sort of, I suppose, you know, I wouldn't say move away or discrepancy, but there has there has to be questions raised of how Ajax continue to work, because I, although Ajax have this fantastic tradition historically of recruiting the best young talents within the Netherlands, educating them at the club, whether they start at Ajax at a very young age, or in their teenage years they'd move to the club from other youth clubs and academies. Ajax also have taken advantage of the historical links to you know the likes of Suriname, with you know you, you think of them. Um, Clarence Seedorf. So South Africa has, you know, brought them opportunities like Stephen Pienaar through Ajax Cape Town. And of course, they've been able to bring in young players from South America because of the work permit rules in um, the Netherlands. So what we are kind of seeing with Ajax is, you know, you look at them signing Sebastian Allaire in January, you're kind of saying, how is this club maintaining its identity as a, a youth producer Southampton the same you could say they have a great tradition you know towards the end of their time in the Premier League 
you know, just over 10 years ago. Um, their years where they dropped to the championship and even to League One, they brought young players in, they developed young players in, they gave them the opportunity. And I suppose, you know, although some have stalled in recent years, we are seeing the likes of James Ward-Prowse, you know, just rise into the team and really kind of lead this Southampton side now as their captain. Like, although, like many clubs, form inconsistencies this year with the COVID thing. But so we're still seeing, you know, some sort of resurgence under Ralph Hassan. But like that, questions will have to be asked about how this can be sustained. Obviously, like like many others, Southampton as well have introduced a lot of young players this year. So it'll be interesting to see when things begin to normalise, things begin to settle down. Will the pathway still be there for these young players who've begin who've begun to, you know, break into these matchday squads at Southampton? I suppose like that as well, the biggest question would have to be now about Chelsea as well. Under the first season of Frank Lampard, we had the transfer ban. And the club was forced to rely on the young players that they had to be out on loan. And we saw how well Chelsea done under Lampard. Like it was really like they finished in the top four. You know, it was really, you know, promising what what we saw there from Chelsea with these young players. And then obviously, you know, you signed Christian Pulisic in in kind of your as kind of a delayed transfer, a later transfer, you know, kind of subverting the the rules of the transfer ban. But, you know, considering the the money that was spent in the summer twenty twenty, we've seen the management change. So questions will now have to be there about how Thomas Tuchel. What will his approach be with new production at Chelsea? Will he continue to rely on um, Reese James? I know we, we've seen Fiaco Tomori move away. Mason Mount's game time has been in and out. Hudson Adoy has been in and out. Tammy Abraham. So what will the future of Chelsea be with these young players? That has to be a question that needs to be asked. And just like that, the future of Barcelona as well. We're looking at the huge, you know financial issues the club is undergoing it's very public knowledge now at this stage and you know if if Messi departs obviously that's a financial burden off the club but then what way does it work for them how do they replace Messi do they spend money which they haven't done wisely in the past which may not exist at the moment or do they rely on bringing to the likes of Pedri and Anzu Fati and others like will these financial issues force the club to go back to La Masia to bring kind of the second era, the second golden era of what Guardiola had done at his time when, back in 2008 when he took over. So I suppose what can we learn from youth production, developing a conveyor belt? It's challenging. That's really what it is. Is success guaranteed? No. It's not. Young players are inexperienced. Young players haven't been through the rigours of professional football. And even at a young age, young players are still more likely to make mistakes because they're growing and they're learning within the game. I suppose we can look at you know, the, the leagues we're managing and the clubs we're managing in relation to other leagues, in relation to other clubs. You'll know yourself in Football Manager 21, Football Manager 20, whatever version you're playing. If you're looking to, to establish a youth production model, you know you, you can base it around you know, right? Are we going to be a production club, a selling club, or are we going to be a club that picks off the best of the young players from other clubs and develops them? We they can use this as a stepping stone then, or are we going to be at the top? But we're going to you know 
look to have this conveyor belt constantly just bringing in the best coaches bringing in the best youth players what what way are we going to invest we can learn from i suppose ac milan's model at the moment is for me the most exciting because like that they're bringing in older players to mentor to guide and that's what i try to do at valencia and i'm trying to do at valencia and whether i continue to do at valencia it remains to be seen But for me, that's the standout model. Having experienced players who've been there, done that, and get what it's like to be a professional footballer. They can take the pressure off the young players and guide them through. But of course, it's all about getting a balance. Finding a way that works best for you. Make, and make it, and finding a way that works best for your situation. So maybe after this podcast, maybe the next time you load up football manager. Take 10 minutes to half an hour, however long it is that you get. Have a notebook and a pen. Look at the young players you have coming through. Maybe you've done it already. And see, is there a pathway for them to get into my first team squad? Are there gaps that I need to fill with other young players, maybe? With other experienced pros? How can almost make this club become self-sufficient? look thank you so much for listening to the podcast i really do appreciate it i'm into the last week now of my little digital detox so you know i hope it should be a little bit more active on social media now come next monday the first of march um links down below to me on twitter the technical area um the website the emails if you want to get in contact and yeah stay safe take care enjoy your football manager this weekend Next week, uh, episode 57, we are looking at Give the Man a Trophy. Sorry, Give a Man a Trophy. Give it, So basically, it's taking that expression, if you give a man a fish, he eats for a day, teach a man to fish, and he eats for life. So give a man a title, you feed his needs for a day, or teach a club to win, and you feed them for a lifetime. So we're talking about sustained, sustained success. So we be interested to get your stories there. But until next week, I've been Gaffer Game. Take care. Stay safe. Bye now.